This is episode 42 of Ripe Good Scholar, George Peel and Titus Andronicus. Tis the most incorrect and indigested piece in all his works. It seems rather a heap of rubbish than a structure. Dang, people are so harsh on this play and it's fine. It's unsubtle, but also it's good. This is Ryan North, the author of To Be or Not To Be, That Is The Adventure, and you're listening to Ripe Good Scholar. Welcome to Ripe Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have travelled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilised around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah. Hello, and welcome to Ripe Good Scholar. Today, we are beginning to get a clearer picture of the Elizabethan theater scene. It was a place of collaboration and mentoring. Novice writers would hone their craft with the help of more seasoned ones. Writers would also imitate each other and edit each other's work for their own use. This realization has caused scholars in recent years to look more closely at Shakespeare's work and see where he may have collaborated. One unsurprising candidate was Titus Andronicus, easily Shakespeare's most gruesome play, and one of his earliest. The top candidate for co-author is George Peel, a university wit. Today, Eli and I are going to get to know George Peel and examine the role he may have played in writing Titus Andronicus. For this episode, I read excerpts from Shakespeare co-author by Brian Vickers and several articles. If you want to check out all my sources, head over to ripegoodscholar.com EP42. Now, let's head to Oxford. So today, we're going to talk about Titus Andronicus Ooh. and discuss its possible co-author, George Peel. George Peel. Yes. Um, we'll get to the arguments for and against his co-authorship um, towards the end, but I think it'd be helpful at first to let's get to know George a little bit. Now, I know there are a lot of Shakespeare fans who really, really don't like Titus Andronicus. Yes. So again, this is a discussion we'll get into a little bit later, but that's part of the reason that the Shakespeare's authorship at all was questioned and certainly whether or not he worked alone yeah i i've, I've seen quite a pe- few people uh kind of make those kinds of arguments there is some evidence to support it which again we'll get to at the end but i think it's helpful to get to know george peel because it's important to know shakespeare's contemporaries and potential collaborators because I think too often we buy into this image of Shakespeare as the lone genius writing in his room, whereas there's little evidence to actually support that writing style at the time. You not only had a lot of imitation, but theater in and of itself is very collaborative. So we'll probably do do a whole episode on the Elizabethan writer's room 
that happened. But I think due to the imitation, and also it wasn't unusual for more seasoned playwrights, such as Peel and Marlowe, to work with novice playwrights, like Shakespeare would have been at this time. Interesting. George Peel was born in July 1556. What's interesting is that his father actually wrote a few things. His father was the clerk of Christ's Hospital, which is a school. That's confusing. I hate it. I know. But his father wrote at least two textbooks on accounting and bookkeeping, which includes one of the earliest times that the strategy of double entry in your accounting was established. So, just fun facts. I mean, I'm riveted so far. His father also wrote some pageants. Oh, were they about math? I don't think so. So, Peel would have been educated at the school his father worked at. Makes sense. Now, Peel did go on to university, which makes him one of our university wits. Oh, those university wits. Sweatshirt available on our Teespring. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so he started at Broadgates Hall in Oxford in 1571. In 1574, he moved to Christ Church, which is still Oxford. Like, it's like across the street. I'm not totally understanding how universities worked at the time. Maybe we'll go into that one day if we find it worth it. But now he received his bachelor's degree in 1577, which made me laugh because the article i was reading was like that actually took a little longer than most people six years seems like uh quite a long time for a bachelor's degree it only took you five four and a half madam (laughs) (laughs) but he received his master's degree faster um he received his master's in 1579 which actually required him to get permission to finish it in two years rather than the three that were standard which i found interesting yes now Peel as a writer, he was a bit eclectic. He wrote a little bit of everything. Yeah. You know, obviously histories, comedies, tragedies, but... Something spicy. What'd he write? He he was known for a little bit of a violent streak. Oh. As you could maybe have guessed by his suspected co-authorship of Titus Andronicus. Fair. (laughs) (laughs) He was very into niche genres. So, like, he was writing in not necessarily, like, the big popular dramas. Like, he did write some histories and stuff like that. Like, we know some things he wrote. But it wasn't like when we see Shakespeare and Shakespeare's always writing what was popular at the time. That's not necessarily Peel's style. He wrote plays, pageants, and a few poems. Probably some pamphlets, too, because let's just get it all in there. Okay, so instruct me, a learned teacher, what is a pageant a pageant would have been like a from what i understand a shorter performance that would have been done like at court or at some sort of celebration so it wasn't like a full play i guess what's coming to mind the show uh, that we talked about at kenilworth where elizabeth saw the like you know mermaid riding a dolphin across the lake and there were that kind of stuff would have been a pageant high production values but fairly short and not as uh intensive as a play yeah i think it would have been just shorter form performances and yeah i think to an extent especially if you're talking about a royal visit it would have been like a big big deal but someone would have written like when elizabeth met the green man after hunting or the lady of the lake handed her her kingdom you know what i mean yeah these weren't necessarily high production value moments but they were shorter moments that someone still wrote. It's that kind of stuff. It's these kind of court entertainments, from what I understand. Peel didn't worry too, too much about what was popular. 
and what his other university wits were doing. For example, other university wits were very into the long form poem and Peel wrote a couple maybe but he wasn't super into the long form poems like the rest of his comrades were so you're saying that the university wits wanted to just write really lengthy poems that went on and on and on i know it seems really unlike them i know they're usually you know so restrained he also translated some works from latin fun so as you can see he kind of ran the gamut of what a writer could do which is part of the reason that people feel like of course it got attributed to him he wrote everything yeah if we don't know who wrote something it must have been peel (laughs) (laughs) that's a fun little niche to have in history though so titus andronicus was published three times in a cordo version as far as i can tell they didn't really change from cordo to cordo but at least not significantly but there was they were all published without an author listed so shakespeare was not put on it neither was peel one thing i read said that was unusual from what i've seen it's not that unusual especially considering at the time this is at the start of shakespeare's career like his name wasn't selling quartos yet yeah that's fair <laughs> and i don't know if peels was i don't know he was a little he's a little bit of a niche audience so maybe not the first performance was in 1594 we know that because of our good friend henslow in his diary nice So it wasn't until Titus Andronicus was published in the first folio that it was officially attributed to Shakespeare. Okay. As we remember, the first folio was published in 1623. Yeah. By 1687, we had the first questioning of whether Shakespeare wrote Titus Andronicus or not. Which isn't that long. Yeah. It's like as soon as plays started happening again. Edward Ravenscroft is the first one who questioned, at least the first one that wrote down questioning Shakespeare's authorship. So as you very astutely pointed out, Edward Ravenscroft was writing at the time of the Restoration. I'm astute. So he actually adapted Titus Andronicus, or and he called it the Rape of Lavinia. So in his introduction to his adaptation, he said, I have been told by some anciently conversant with the stage that it was not originally his, but brought by a private author to be acted and he only gave some master touches to one or two of the principal parts or characters. This I am apt to believe, because tis the most incorrect and indigested piece in all his works. It seems rather a heap of rubbish than a structure. Dang, people are so harsh on this play, and it's fine. It's unsubtle, but also it's good. We were very fortunate to see an extremely well-done production of Titus and Hronicus. When you're reading it, you're kind of like, what is this nonsense? I read it first. Yeah, I read that one for class, and we discussed it at length. I, I really enjoyed it. So after Ravenscroft made that statement in his introduction, scholars pretty much jumped on that bandwagon for hundreds of years, that it was such a garbage play. And I think you have to keep in mind the time period. Tastes were changing, you know. Hands and tongues being cut out were not the theatrical tastes of the time. They didn't even like sad endings. The fact that it was so violent and not like super well written compared to Shakespeare's later works. Oh, yeah. When you look at King Lear or Macbeth next to Titus Andronicus, you're like, "Mm, really, sir? Yeah, that's fair. But he also was just starting. This is when Henry VI was happening. So, like, we know he was honing his craft. Basically, questioning the authorship came out of the idea that, like, they just couldn't believe Shakespeare wrote such a bad play. 
which I was like, did y'all read Henry VI? Right? It's so much worse than this. But I think when we take into account their opinions toward, like, gratuitous violence, like I said, they changed the ending of King Lear because it was too sad. There have been decades of research comparing Peele's writing style and Shakespeare's with human analysis. In recent years, and I'm talking recent in terms of, like, Shakespeare was writing 400 years ago recent, with the advent of computers and textual analysis was able to get a little more specific. That's forensic textual analysis. Textual analysis is just looking at words and talking about what they mean and how they reflect on the text. Forensic textual analysis is the thing with the computers. So with the forensic textual analysis and also, like I said, there had been human scholars and still are human scholars looking at Peel's writing style and finding evidence to support it. But with the advent of you know, forensic textual analysis, computers are just able to get to a level of detail that just realistically as a human would take us years. And I mean, like looking at how many times they use three syllable words and punctuation and that kind of stuff. Although punctuation, I'm like, lols, we learned about that during the creation of the first folio. There's lots of approaches to punctuation at that time. <laughs> Even just in this kind of initial introduction to it, we can see where there are some pitfalls to forensic textual analysis, in part because so many people were tossing their hat in the ring of the publication of the play, but also so much plagiarism at the time. For example, with the Henry VI, if the way Christopher Marlowe wrote at the time was popular, perhaps Shakespeare was emulating Marlowe. Yeah, that could easily be. You can see that kind of thing play out today. How many moody World War II movies were produced right after Saving Private Ryan? Exactly. And I think that could make forensic textual analysis a little less certain. One issue with using forensic textual analysis is that there has been no meta-research to test its validity. It basically uses machine learning to come up with these ways of examining texts and coming to conclusions but there has been no study to test the validity of those conclusions people just say that sounds right and publish their results which you know it's fine for you to say these are the results and this is our method but without really testing the method it's difficult to say for sure this is what uh we know in defense of the people writing the studies um just because this is something i learned in grad school one there should, in most good studies, be a section on the pitfalls of the methodology. And also, I would assume in their conclusions, they would be saying, this is what this indicates, but we don't know. And, and that's, that's the problem when a study gets commented on and makes its way into the mainstream. People leave out that nuance that's present in the study. And so they just go forward with the story. We know George Peel wrote most of Titus Andronicus now. I was reading Shakespeare co-author by Brian Vickers. Basically what he did, and I'm not going to lie, it is a super dense read. It's like reading a scholarly article or thesis or something. Each chapter, he focuses on a different potential co-author. All of the tests that have been done and like what kind of tests have been done and what their conclusions were. 
It's very thorough. It's just not written to be like an entertaining read. Yeah, I've come across quite a few of those in my line of work. Like I said, it's very thorough. It was very extensive look at the evidence for and against. He pointed out in his thing that there have been over 21 different tests and all of them came to similar conclusions, which is interesting. It doesn't necessarily prove anything. And like I said, most people buy into the theory that George Peel started the play and Shakespeare finished it mm-hmm. because that was a fairly normal occurrence for the time that a more seasoned writer would start a play and the other one would finish it. I haven't done a ton of research into this yet, but that seems to be how Henry VIII might have worked. And another member of the Shakespeare Apocrypha, Edward III, I believe were collaborations with John Fletcher, who was just starting to write as Shakespeare was towards the end of his career. I mean, that that's really fascinating. It's just also funny that the idea that George Peel wrote the most ridiculous opening of any play I've ever seen that goes to 30 different places at breakneck speed in the very first scene and then was like, you just finished this, right? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what a jerk. So actually, it's... um interesting that you mentioned that kind of style because that is one of the big pieces of evidence in support of peel that kind of rapid action 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 with little flow was very peel so the rapid plot development with no flow to it at all yes vickers put it really well in his book The general characteristics of Peel's style, we may say, is a verbal expansiveness vitiated by two failing, an inadequate sense of economy and inability to vary utterance according to character or context. He elaborates further down that inadequate sense of economy that was his boo, 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 boo. One or two plot developments per scene. Titus come in as the conquering hero, refuse the crown, crown somebody, have himself stripped of his spoils of conquest, kill one of his sons, chase his other sons into exile, disown his daughter, all in like one scene. I don't even think I hit all the plot development in that scene. Uh, you have Saturninus accepting the crown and marrying what's her name? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. There was a whole marriage I missed. Oh, yeah, and Lavinia ran off with Bassiana. Yeah. And also in that opening scene, we see when the two brothers are advocating for them accepting the throne. Mm-hmm. It's very parallel how they talk. Saturninus says his piece, and then Bassianus says his, and it's very, very similar. And then Bassianus concedes to Titus, so does Saturninus. You know, like, it's just... One does something, the other does it too. To the point where you almost can't tell them apart. You you really can't. They're so similar. I think in the productions I've seen, like the, the Anthony Hopkins production, they basically were like, What if we dress them nothing alike? Will people be able to tell them apart then? Yeah, so that is also very indicative of Peel's style. So we have these elements of Peel that we can see in, especially the opening. And I think there's one random scene in Act 4 that they think he wrote. But the big one is the open. Yeah. I want to say he probably got through all the stuff with Lavinia too. He raced through it. Most of what happens in Titus happens in what Peel wrote. And then Shakespeare takes his time allowing Titus to mentally break down and 
build towards revenge. Yeah, you do have these, you know, after this really intense and horrifying first half of the play, even just like first quarter of the play, you have so much that is Titus and Lavinia slowly breaking down and being hilarious and at times profound. And none of that feels like it leads naturally from what came before. Yeah, and I think that's part of why people don't like the play and why people started questioning Shakespeare's authorship at all. You know, now we've come around to like, he definitely wrote at least most of it. There's so much of, especially the latter parts of the play, that you see echoes of throughout the rest of his plays. Exactly. And I think that's what we have to keep in mind. And I think we also have to allow ourselves to remember that Shakespeare was at one point a novice writer. He wasn't born writing King Lear. And I think that's where the original questioning came from. I don't know who this Edward Ravenscroft talked to. Obviously no one who like directly knew Shakespeare was around when that was written because no. Yeah, but we do know that he had a great last name. But it was close enough to the time the plays were written that it's realistic that stories would have passed on. I think he jumped to like Shakespeare didn't write any of it, whereas the collaborative aspect makes much more sense now knowing what we do of the Elizabethan theater scene. Yeah, it's very strange, but we do know and understand more about the Elizabethan theater scene than people two generations removed from it. Yeah, and I think some of that has to do with our reevaluation of what was thought before. Because at the time when Shakespeare's popularity was getting established, at the time of the Jubilee, which we're going to have an upcoming episode on. We're going to have a Jubilee Jubilee? Yes. That is when this narrative of this lone genius start. Well, I guess no. I lied. It wasn't at the Jubilee. It was at the first folio is when we they started laying the groundwork for Shakespeare, like being this lone genius in his room. Yeah, that introduction, especially. Yes. And that idea was perpetuated throughout the 17, 18, 1900s. Because that's what we thought of when we thought of genius. But as we have started to reevaluate that notion of a genius, it's becoming clear that that wasn't the case, that that wasn't what was happening. For example, what comes to my mind is Thomas Edison. Everybody was like, oh, he was just this like crazy, awesome inventor up in his study. That's what we were taught in school. And then you grow up and you're like, oh no, he stole things from everybody. Yeah, he stole a lot of things from people. But to my point, we bought into the idea of the lone genius. Yeah. And I think that's where when we do have people who solely wrote on their own without collaboration, I think that's where we start to then question the authorship at all. Hmm. Like Mark Twain. Yeah. Because if you're writing on your own, you must be pulling from your background. Yeah, that that was his thing. Of course, Mark Twain only wrote about life in the South, whereas at the time, Jules Verne was writing crazy science fiction. Yeah, and that's not to say that people didn't write on their own. And I think when you got to, like, novels and the advent of those, you did see more people writing on their own, but Name a playwright today who sits and writes by themselves and has never changed when it hits the stage. I could not name a playwright. Or a screenwriter who works alone. I could not name a screenwriter. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think that too often when we think of Shakespeare as a writer, we think of people writing novels. Yeah. Because people writing novels do work alone. And that is the normal thing we think of when we think about a writer. But when you look at it more in a context of playwrights or screenwriters or television writers, they don't write alone. Someone might write the main script alone, but it's going to then go to the room to be reworked. And then it's going to go to the actors to be reworked. And then it's going to probably be reworked to an extent again by the editors. And that's more of what we saw with Shakespeare. Who would give him a script for an episode and he would basically edit it and then list himself as the sole writer. I think that illustrates a little bit of the more seasoned writer bringing up novice writers. Yeah, true. For example, Henry VIII or Shakespeare's credited first because Shakespeare's name is the one that's going to sell. Now, it's a little different when we look earlier in Shakespeare's career because like no one was credited. Like Marlowe was never written down on Henry VI. Peel was never written down on Titus Andronicus. But that may be more indicative of the theater scene at the time than it is of their contribution. Yeah, because at the time, theater was still new. You know, while Marlowe and Peel and Green and all these guys were pretty well known, they were also well known for their long form poems they were writing. They were known for other works they were writing along with some of their plays. And some of this is speculation on my part, and I need to do more research into it. But it might be more indicative of the early theater scene than it is of, like you said, their contributions. That people were just publishing Cordos and not super caring. And then with people like Shakespeare, who were dedicated writers with dedicated companies of actors, now that name is selling. Yeah. Whereas before, the Lord Admiral's men was selling. You know, the... the people would go to the rows to see good plays it was the theater it was the company that was selling more than the writer's name whereas i think you see that evolve over time yeah and i think you see a similar thing with the early days of film just because that's probably a better documented period where you saw stars who were amazing on screen start to draw in more of the money and with that you had the kind of real explosion in the fame and the marquee status of actors compared to other contributors to the film. I just thought of Grossworth and Wood, how salty Green was about like, oh, the actors are the famous one. They wouldn't be anything without the writers. Nothing at all. You know, the fact remains, we're never gonna know. Because that piece of paper saying, yes, George Peel wrote the first half and Shakespeare finished it. It doesn't exist. Or And if it ever did exist, it's long gone. It's possible that it will show back up but in all probability we are never gonna know i think in shakespeare scholarship especially when we're talking about co-authorship and collaboration we need to find a balance between trusting the analysis of experts but i think we need to always keep in mind that this is theory and speculation because we are 400 years removed from this play being written. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com EP42 for even more information on George Peel and Titus Andronicus. 
The show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure you are on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholar. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Ripe Good Scholar to keep the Shakespeare fun going all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember, our court shall be a little academe, still and contemplative in living art. <laughs>